Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. And J.J. and I were just before we started recording in the middle of a game. As we usually and are. And Tim made us get back to work and start recording, but we're not going to. Tim made us. No, Tim made us get, Tim back. Made made us. get back to work. That counts. Yes, it that does. That was mine. You, you did say it. Okay, now you go. <laughs> the weather outside is driving me crazy. Mm. Mm-hmm. We all have to do things we don't want to do. Today is really hard. (laughs) Sugar cravings run my life. (laughs) I can't get anything done without coffee in the morning. I can't get anything done until you get coffee in the morning. (laughs) I can't get anything done when you're on my back. (laughs) Why would I be on your back? Because you're driving. I don't know. I have to carry you in everything we do. (laughs) Life is hard. Is that one? I think it is. Yeah, that counts. Yeah, we probably I wonder should. if the listeners know <laughs> how whiny we are tra- right now. Uh, but yeah. I wonder if they can figure out what we're trying to do. Yeah, there's what right now they're saying, oh, these guys are driving me crazy. They're going to make me turn this off. Yeah, this podcast has put me in a bad mood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what JJ and I are doing is we're tossing back and forth statements that demonstrate an external locus of control. Mm. Ooh, we're very mm. smarty farties. Yeah, smart. <laughs> smart stuff today. Which are not good statements. No. Well, it's not that they're bad statements. Yeah. The thing is, there's these two things. The internal locus of control, yep. and I'm probably going to butcher this. I've only read a few books <laughs> that talk about it. Yeah. But internal locus of control versus external locus of control. Yeah. And people who have a more sound internal locus of control, that is, they believe they are in charge of their fate, yeah. their lives, what their they, feelings, their feelings yeah. and their actions, they are healthier happier people. Yeah, and there's a lot of statements we make, like the ones that we just made, <laughs> that we don't even think about about how that impacts our mentality, about yeah. how we can accomplish things, what our motivation is, because we start putting credit, essentially, for what we get done in a day on somebody else. Like, if this goes wrong, I am not capable of doing that. Or if right. this person treats me this way, it throws me off. And that is an external Locus. Yeah, external locus of control basically means other people or situations define how you experience life. Yep. Yeah. Whether or not, and, and an internal locus of control just means that I believe I have power. And people who are, I think, better leaders, yeah. well, they've actually shown that people who have a high internal locus of control make more money, experience less depression, yeah. and all this kind of stuff. It's a characteristic you can learn. You can yeah. figure out you're doing it. Well, I often have to remind myself I'm not a victim. Right? Oh, like, really? Do you yeah. do you have a victim default? No, I wouldn't say I do. It's just when because like I don't get into range. that. Yeah. Like all of a sudden I'll be like, I'm exhausted today. And I'll go, Yeah, but I chose to go out with my friends last night. Yes. Like that used to drive me nuts when I would work in with college students in particular. Mm-hmm. They'd come into class and they're like, I just don't feel good. I didn't sleep last night. And it's like, What were you studying or what? Not feeling good? And it's like, No, I went to that party. And I'm like, that actually doesn't impact my relationship with you today. You chose to do that. You're not a victim. Right. Not a, and, right. And there are moments, especially when I'm tired, me being, t- when I get tired, I get really emotional. We all, <laughs> we all know this. I start crying. It just happens. But that's when I have to like stop. If I start kind of spiraling a little bit and going, like, go in that, I'll go me. into it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm not a victim here. 
Life is really good. You have a choice to do this. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to, but you're not a victim in this I've situation. I've noticed really, like really impactful people. I'm thinking about uh, my friend Bob Goff, who you yep. know so well. You could, uh, and don't do this, but you could cut Bob's right leg off. And here's how Bob would respond. I can't believe how well I swim in circles. I have never been able to swim in circles. Hey, watch this. Totally. Watch me. Watch me loop this. I can just swim around this rock. So easy. <laughs> no external locus yeah. of control. I got a text message from him this morning. I know. I Did saw you see it. that? Yes. Yeah, he's flying a cargo plane over <laughs> El Shabbat in Mogadishu, yeah. bringing food to the 25,000 people they're trying to yeah. starve and out. And he's like in the desert, and he's got this huge bag of food on his back, carrying it in the That's middle of right. the heat and he's got the biggest smile the biggest that smile I've ever seen. That is internal locus <laughs> yes. of control. Oh, you're hungry? I'll get a plane and bring you food. Yeah, no than, big deal. Those guys are so bad Yeah, and they're trying to starve these people out. He's like, oh yeah. no, let's do something about <laughs> yeah. this. We could totally... <laughs> I don't, I'm not there. Yeah, I'm no, not there yet. I'm, I'm, in percentages, yeah. I'm heading in that yes. direction. But I would credit really not being a victim because yeah. external locus control, the far end of external locus control really is about victimhood, right? So you, if you go all the way to the end of the external locus of control, yeah. it's the victim. And in a story, here's why you do not want to be the victim. In a story, the victim is a bit part. Yeah. The victim does two things, makes the villain look bad and the hero look good. That's, That's it. it. <laughs> they yeah. get no reward at the end of the movie. Yeah. They don't. And so even if you are a victim, yeah. you want to get out of it as fast as possible. Yeah. And what's scary is there are a lot of folks out there, a lot of people out there, and I, they mean really well. You know, yeah. God bless them. But they kind of like helping victims. Yeah. And if you're not a victim, they don't know how to interact with you. So yeah. they want you to be a victim so that they can help you. And it's yeah. you got to be really careful not to fall yeah. into that trap. And we know, I mean, obviously, we know there are real victims and yes. like people who have well, bad Henry things Cloud happen. Henry defines to them. victims as somebody who has no way out. Like they actually yeah. don't have any option to yep. get out of this. And I would say that's absolutely true. Yeah. And victim states are states; they're not people. Yeah. You're just in this phase. Yeah. But we got to get out of it. Yeah. I remember I was probably 25, 26, right in there, which is pretty old to have this realization that I had in, like an incredible victim default going on. I mean, not, not to like some nth crazy degree, but yeah. probably in the range of average, I'd probably average more toward the victim. Yeah. And when I had that realization of I'm not actually a victim, like yeah. I'm actually causing most of this, yeah. in the next 10 years, lost a couple hundred pounds, became a best-selling author, and became a multimillionaire yeah. and got married. Yeah. It's that powerful. Yeah. Not that anybody who does really, yeah, yeah. there's other things that I did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it will literally hurt you that badly. Mm-hmm. I heard a speech from Brene Brown recently. Betsy and I went and saw her give a lecture. Yeah. One of the best talks, if not the best talk I've ever heard. She's she amazing. really is amazing. And one of the things that she said was, those of us with influence have a responsibility to set the table to have a conversation about oppression. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I agree, I, but I would also say this, and I think she would agree, that if the victim sets the table, they often have more power to start the conversation. And what I mean by that is, basically, when the victim actually says, I'm not going to self-identify as a victim, even though I actually am one, I am going to stand in my moral authority and start a conversation. So you look at Dr. King, you look at Mohandas Gandhi, you look at these guys, and they basically said, I'm not going to be a victim, I'm going to be a conqueror. And they also combine that with nonviolent resistance, which is very helpful. But there's power when a victim says, I'm not going to identify as a victim. 
And we aren't experts on this, no, right? No. We, 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 <laughs> yeah. we can't actually speak to internal, external locus of control. But there is a fella who wrote a book called yes. The Power of Habit, and he wrote a new book called Smarter, Faster, Better that I picked up and immediately came back to the office in order to bunch for our team. It's fantastic. His name is Charles Duhigg. Yeah. Charles has had a book on the New York Times bestsellers list for the last 72 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> is that all? Is that all? And we interview him for this episode, yeah. and we get into a little bit of the internal versus external locus control, which I think is the foundation for the whole conversation. Yeah. But it is the key to productivity, happiness, all those kinds of things. And even Viktor Frankl would say, you've got to find some sort of redemption for your suffering. Yeah. So when hard things happen to you, you got to say, yeah, it was hard, and yeah, bad things happened, but I also got some good stuff out of it. I got character, I got resolve, I got these kinds of things. And you redeem those difficult things. Anyway, that's not what Charles's book is about. <laughs> yeah, His book is about how to be smarter, how to be yeah, faster, how to be better. a lot of motivation better. pieces but of it. Yeah. One of the prescriptions, he would say, is embrace an internal locus of control. But I'm with you. I'll find myself going, oh, what was it the other day? Something happened. Oh, that's what it was. I, I bought an F-150, and it's a much bigger car than uh -huh. I'm used to driving. And I've, it's a beautiful, I mean, you've seen it. It's a yeah. beautiful new truck. I've never had one. I've scraped the back of it on the mailbox twice pulling <laughs> into my driveway. <laughs> and one time I pulled into the driveway and I realized it was happening, so I hit the brakes. But now I'm flush up against the mailbox. So if I go right or left, it's going to get worse. Yeah. Two cars have stopped waiting for me to decide what to do right outside of my house on the road. And that was a very tempting moment to go into victim mindset. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, you hit the mailbox, yeah. Miller, and you, <laughs> you take responsibility. And there's something about having power or realizing you're having power that is associated with mental health. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, I, I can get out of this if I want to rather than I'm a, a total victim to it. Yeah. I've taken this so far that I often play a game called How Is It My Fault? Yeah. <laughs> so, it, I mean, really, yeah. it sounds crazy. Yeah. But most of us actually play the opposite game. Yeah. We actually go, how is this somebody else's fault? Yep. Which is external locus of control. So, even the other day, somebody was late. I thought it was pretty stinking disrespectful for them to be late to this thing. They'd done it before. And I was pretty frustrated. And I was going a little bit victim mode of like, I, I guess they don't respect me enough to actually be on time. It was actually a group of people who had done this a few times. Nobody that you're thinking yeah. of. You're like, okay, I'm like was the staff mind. late? No, uh, no, it was, this classic was different. Classic Tim. It was a dinner party. And then I went, okay, how is this my fault? Well, you told them it was no big deal and we have a really flexible schedule today. And you repeated it about three times. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, this is my fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. my fault. Yeah. They actually respect <laughs> me and love me a lot, yeah. right? You created this. So if you wanted to have dinner at six, you should, should not have said, said hey, we need don't to do this worry at six. about it. Yeah. yeah. Then I felt set free. Yeah. And then when they got it there, I was like, I just had the greatest night and enjoyed their company because I'm the one who told them. Yeah. It's amazing how it just changes everything. Yeah. How is this my fault? We should. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> the name of a game, podcast. Yeah. Welcome to How Is This My Fault? That would be, I would want to do How Is This Your Fault? So people <laughs> would call in and I would say, That's your That's fault. That's external, Don. Yeah. That's external. Well, well, yeah, I know. External locus. But it just it would be better. It would just be a better <laughs> podcast, It'd be more entertaining. Yeah, I think if we start blaming all our problems on other people, you have an external locus of control. But if you can find a way for you to say, okay, 90% of it may be external, but this 10% I can own, yeah. you'll be a healthier, happier person, as demonstrated in Charles Duhigg's book. Yeah. And the guy's a genius. Do you know he won a Pulitzer? No. He won a Pulitzer for his writing on economics in the New York Times. Wow. Yeah. He's a smart guy. Yeah. <laughs> 
Clearly. Real smart guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they haven't given me a Pulitzer yet, and it's making me sad. He gets all the breaks. My life would be great <laughs> if somebody would give me a Pulitzer. Yeah, but the he's pu- so lucky, and I never have that kind of luck. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> here's the interview. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your book, the new one, Smarter, Faster, Better, or the more recent one, not The Power of Habit, which I think has been on New York Times bestsellers, that's for what, 27 years now? <laughs> a very long time. It's been for a while. I've been very lucky. Well, more than lucky. I think you're quite talented. I got the new book on a plane, and it was one of those books where you know it happens maybe once every two years. You just immediately order a case, send it to the office, and say, hey, we're all going to read this. We're all going to understand it. Oh, thanks. But it was, it was interesting because... It's a book that really helps us all be more productive and more innovative and get more done. But it's also a book that, you know, for a growing company, is a book about sanity. It's just a book about staying sane and not letting this thing ride you, right? You're going to ride this company. It's not going to roll over you. That came to you, these thoughts, the motivations of these thoughts. And you're definitely a journalist. You're a researcher. But the spark of it, it sounds like it came from you not enjoying your own success. Is that true? Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, a, a huge part of this is rooted this in this idea that in this kind of economic revolution that we're living through, there's now this huge difference between being busy and being productive. Right. And understanding that at a really deep level is critical to success. And that's exactly what happened to me. You know, I started working on this book the same year that The Power of Habit came out. And The Power of Habit was doing well. And, and that same year, I was I was a reporter at the New York Times, and I was working on this series about Apple that went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. And so professionally, it was a great year for me, but I was just miserable. I felt like I was just working all the time, and that even though everything was kind of flowering the way that I had hoped it would, it didn't feel rewarding in any way, in in part because, because I felt like I was constantly like falling behind, right? That it, that if I was on top of like communication through emails, that meant that I was falling behind on writing articles. And if I was writing on top of writing articles, that meant that I wasn't spending time with my family and that there were all these opportunities that I wasn't taking advantage of. And, and I could literally spend my days just working, you know, 22 hours a day. And the harder and harder I was running, the more and more I felt like I was falling behind. Yeah. And so I started calling all these researchers and asking them, you know, everybody only has 24 hours in a day. Why does it seem like that there's some people who are so on top of things and get so much done and other people who seem to work constantly and don't. What they said is, look, you're thinking about this wrong because you're trying to do more and more and more. But what we know about success and about the most productive people is it's not that they act differently as much as they think differently, right? Mm -hmm. They have a completely different way of thinking about their goals and their priorities and remaining focused and spurring innovation. And that once you understand that busy does not equal productive, in fact, oftentimes the two things are at odds with each other, then you're in a position to start making better choices and decisions. And so that's what Smarter, Faster, Better is. It's this exploration of what we know about the science of genuine productivity and why it occurs. And that's one of the things I love about the book. You sort of explain what's happening in the brain, and then you just give practical tips on here's how to manage the way your brain actually works. Can you tell us a little bit, and did you experience or realize you were experiencing this time cognitive tunneling. You talk about cognitive tunneling as a sort of a natural reaction to being overstimulated. And I have a feeling that half or more of the people listening to this are experiencing this without even knowing it's happening. What is cognitive tunneling? Oh, absolutely. My favorite way of like suggesting the last time you've had cognitive tunneling is, is you know, when you're like driving down the freeway and you're Mm -hmm. going to speed limit, right? You're not speeding. 
but you see a cop car out of the corner of your eye and you suddenly hit the brakes, right? right? Or you're, right. you're at home and you're making dinner for your kids and you're talking to your spouse and you suddenly get a text message from your boss and like you immediately type a response and hit send. And then as soon as you hit send, you think to yourself like, gosh, I really wish I had waited a couple of minutes and given that another read before hitting send. Cognitive tunneling is our brain's natural way of dealing with too much information or, or sort of too many stimuli. And what we do is because our brain evolved in a setting where too much information meant you need to choose really quickly to, to focus on what could be most dangerous, we tend to focus on whatever is the most obvious stimuli right in front of our eyes, right? right. That's why you like hit the brake. It's because you see the police car. That's the most obvious threatening stimuli. And so you react to it immediately, almost without thinking. And what we know is that in the state of nature, right, if you're like being chased by predators, that's a great reaction. In your kitchen or your office where there's emails coming in and people stopping by to ask if they can ask you a question and someone inviting you to a meeting and your phone is ringing, in an office, it's often disastrous to get drawn into this cognitive tunnel because essentially what happens is you stop making decisions, right? You simply start reacting to what's around you. Now, what we know is that the way that you put yourself back in charge, the way that you put yourself in a situation where you start making choices again instead of simply reacting is oftentimes by building what psychologists refer to as mental models, Hmm. which is essentially the act of telling ourselves a story about what we think should be happening as it's occurring. So, for instance, a lot of what we know about mental models comes from studying people like firefighters. Right. The best firefighters are firefighters who almost have like ESP. It's like they walk into a burning building and they know when something's going to go wrong before it does. Yeah. And when researchers have talked to them, those firefighters always say the same type of thing, which is they say, you know, before I walk into a burning room, I kind of like tell myself a story literally as I walk in about what I expect to see. And I, I tell myself the story that like there's going to be flames in the right corner and there's a staircase in the left corner. There's going to be even more flames above the left corner because there's like an air gap underneath. And then when I walk in, I have this story in my head and I compare reality to the story in my head. And, and I notice that, for instance, you know, flames in the right corner, got that right. Uh, there's fewer flames in the left corner than I expected. And huh. something in my brain says, okay, pay attention to the left corner. Something is wrong there. Don't go near those stairs. Huh. And that's kind of where this like ESP comes from. And what we found is again and again and again, the people who tell themselves stories about their day, who build those mental models, they seem to be more successful. In fact, there was a study that was done of Fortune 500 executives, and they found that the executives that got promoted the fastest one of the habits that they all shared was that they tended to imagine their days with just like half a degree more specificity than their peers. You're kidding. So literally they would, they would sit down in the morning and just say, okay, I've got, you know, these are my meetings today. This one's going to feel like this. I'm probably going to be able to communicate this. This person's probably going to be frustrated. Exactly. And, okay. Now go back. Why does that matter? I'm, I'm trying to figure out why that gives them a competitive advantage. What's happening? Is it because they're more prepared and they, they won't react? Well, I think part of it is preparedness, right? And it's not even like they're sitting down and doing it for five minutes. They, yeah. they tend to be doing it like in their car as they're driving, right? All of us build mental models to some degree. It's just that they push themselves to build mental models that are a little bit more specific than everyone else. Huh. And the reason why it works is because, first of all, yeah, it helps you prepare. But secondly, when you're in those meetings, there's so much stimuli that it's hard for your brain to figure out what it should focus on and what it can safely ignore. 
unless you have a story in your head that your brain is constantly comparing reality to. So if you have that story in your head, when something looks out of whack, when something looks unexpected, your attention goes to that subconsciously or near unconsciously without you having to think about it. Whereas if something's unfolding exactly as you expected, you don't get distracted by it, right? Or more importantly, you're thinking about what am I going to do between like nine and 10 o'clock? And it's like, oh, I want to get that memo written, you know, and I need to do X and Y and Z. So you have a plan that makes it easier to start. But secondarily, like you sit down and things start unfolding as you expect. And then suddenly an email arrives that Hmm. normally you should ignore it doesn't fit into the story inside your head. And so your brain is less likely to be distracted by that email because you have a plan that you're following. That's not what the story was about that we wrote this morning. It's about this. Exactly. It you, just helps you know you what to focus on. You chose the story. First of all, that's a fantastic tip for all of us. I just never even thought about that as being something to do to get a competitive advantage on the day or to help focus. You also talk about something that a lot of us are familiar with, but it should be repeated to every human being every single morning, this difference between the internal and external locus of control. Yeah. And is this also affecting our internal locus of control that we're actually saying, no, I'm going to dictate, not everything, we can't control everything in our lives, but I'm going to dictate how this day goes. Is that part of the strategy of doing that, maintaining an internal locus of control? Oh, absolutely. What we know is that almost everything gets easier when you feel like you're in control, right? Motivation is easier to stimulate when you feel like you're making choices and you're in control. Focus is easier to maintain when you feel like you're in control. And the more that you remind yourself that you're in control, the more that you create a self-image that Mm. just even on near subconscious levels says, oh, you have an internal locus of control. This is something like you're making choices. The more that becomes a habit, and the more it becomes a habit, the easier it is. Yeah. So absolutely, a lot of what you're doing is, or a lot of what people do is, is try and maintain this near subconscious self-image that puts them in control of the choices that they're making, because then it becomes instinctual to say, no, 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 my priorities for today are X, Y, and Z. I'm not going to get distracted by W or by A, B, and C. And you don't want to make it something where you have to consciously think about that, because that's work. You want to make it something where like, your brain's self-image of how to let the day unfold automatically conforms to X, Y, and Z are most important. That's what's getting my attention. I love this. And it keeps us from this sort of victim mindset of, oh, my day got hijacked by this, and I was the victim of that, so I couldn't get this done. That happens to everybody every day, but how we view it makes all the difference. And there's another important component to that, which is the the need for cognitive closure, right? All people have this need to feel productive. It's something that feels good to us. Yeah. And, and the problem with that is that oftentimes, if your environment is pointing you towards busyness instead of productivity, then you'll do things that might feel productive, but actually aren't. And one of my favorite examples of this is to-do lists. So one of the things that we know is that another habit that the most productive people tend to to have disproportionately is that they tend to write to-do lists in very different ways from everyone else. Okay. So most of us write to-do lists essentially as memory aids, right? So, you know, this is how I used to write my to-do list. I'd have a list of like 20 or 30 things that I wanted to get done sometime in the next two weeks. And some of them are important and some are unimportant, but they were basically all jumbled together because I was using this piece of paper as an external memory aid, which is totally fine. You shouldn't carry all that stuff around in your head. It's good to get it on a piece of paper, but you should not use that piece of paper as your daily to-do list. Instead, what you should do, and this is what really productive people do is that every morning you sit down 
and you write a to-do list that only has three things on it. That's exactly what, that's so The most important thing to get done today, the most important thing to get done like tomorrow. And if I get both of those done, the third most important thing. My producer is looking at me right now. I've done this for how many years, Tim? Five years. I have two to-do lists. One, I only give myself three things. And then I have what I call the junk drawer. It's everything that you can do right. after you focus on what's important that really isn't that important. And it separates my brain into what matters and what doesn't matter. And if you look at that junk drawer, we know that your brain, it'll actually direct your eyes to some of the easiest things on that list yeah. because it feels so good to cross them off. But that doesn't mean that those are the most important things. Those don't even mean that you should get those things done. They're almost the opposite of the important things. Exactly. I'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Charles Duhigg in just a moment. Well, it's time for another amazing segment of Marketing Mythbusters with Kula Callahan in her Wonder Woman pose. Hi, Kula. Hello, Don. What is today's marketing myth? Today's myth is this. You should use a lot of the testimonials that your customers give you. I don't think that's a myth. It makes complete sense. No, it doesn't. Yeah, because no, customers, doesn't. people want to know, <laughs> did anybody else like it? That makes complete sense. This is not a myth. I finally got you. No, you didn't, Don. Let did. me tell you why. Hmm. There's a couple reasons why you don't want to do this. First is you actually only need about three testimonials on your website. So speaking hmm. specifically to websites, you only need about three. That establishes enough authority for people to trust you as the guide who has something to help solve their problems. So you only need about three. I see what you're saying because it, it might be true that if you do go four, five, six, seven, eight, and you have a bunch of testimonials, you're sort of moving into the hero you are, right? And role. you're sacrificing that position of the guide and you never want to do that. Never want to give up guide to, okay, you're winning me, you're halfway there. All right, halfway. So this is the second half. Really great customer testimonials usually don't come from the customers themselves. And here's what I mean by that. So most customer testimonials that you get probably talk a lot about how awesome it is to work with you or how amazing their office is or how sweet the woman was on the phone. A bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. A bunch of stuff that doesn't matter because it doesn't tell other potential customers that you solved a problem for that customer. Gotcha. So this is how you want to craft your customer testimonials. Reach out to some of your all-star clients and say, hey, I put together a little testimonial. I know that you had a great experience working with us. Would you mind if we use this on your website? Or even I heard you say right. that you got great value. Totally. Can I actually write that down and yeah. you sign off on it? Absolutely. In other words, you write the testimonial yes. for the customer. Yes. <laughs> All right, I'm with you. Okay, because otherwise those testimonials are way too long. They're rambling. And you really want testimonials that overcome some resistance. So yep. what's the dominant reason people don't do business with you? And you want a testimonial that overcomes that. So whenever right. you, but you want it to be authentic. Totally. We're not trying to lie here. Yeah. When a customer says, man, I always thought you guys were so expensive, but I can't believe the value. You go, ooh, will you say that? Right. Can I write, let's literally, you stop and grab a napkin. Totally. And say, let's write that out. Can I use this? Will you sign off on yeah. it? And then you just need a few of those. Right. All right. The main you thing got to me again. <laughs> I know I did. It's so much fun. <laughs> but the main thing to remember here is that with your testimonials, like you said, you need to overcome an objection that other people have, uh -huh. or you need to speak to how you solved a problem for that person. A success. Yes, totally. Yeah. My lawn looks better than ever. Right. Or I saved, you know, two thousand dollars this month by switching to this provider. You know, whatever it might be. There it goes. But you really want those testimonials to actually sell your product as opposed to just talk about how awesome you are. Yeah, and when you get them, you want to put a few of them on your website, mm -hmm. not very many, a few of them, short, brief, scannable. Then also, if you have an email funnel, if you have a sales funnel, you want to include those testimonials in some emails. In fact, a really great thing, if you're sending out automated emails right now, go find one of those automated emails that doesn't have a PS. Yeah. So use the exact email, Pro tip. but 
write in that email that you're already using, P.S., our customers are experiencing great things already with this product. I just want to share with you something that Julie so-and-so said and then feature that and then just say, Julie, uh, we're so glad. Thank you so much for the testimony or the endorsement. And that's it. Yep. Now you got a testimony in your marketing, and all you had to do was write a PS in an existing email. Yep. Super easy. Super right. powerful. Well, this was great. Cooley, always bring the goods. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to meet Kula Callahan in her Wonder Woman pose live <laughs> and me, and you want great marketing advice in person, we do workshops in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a two-day marketing workshop. By the time you leave, you get actual language that you can use in all of your marketing collateral, language that will pay for the workshop and the trip itself many times over. A lot of you have been wanting to do this, wanting to refine your marketing, but you just haven't found time. Get away, make the sacrifice, get it done in a 48-hour period, and you never have to worry about it again. Sign up for a workshop at storybrand.com. If you register today, you will go to bed tonight knowing that you made a positive step toward growing your business. You'll sleep like a baby. Go to storybrand.com. You actually talk about this, though, Charles, as the key to motivation. Motivation is actually triggered by making choices that demonstrate to ourselves that we are in control. That's exactly right. So part of us not being motivated to do something, the reason we're not motivated is because we don't feel like we're in control of this situation. We're just a bystander here. And you're saying this is how you take control of that, and that will correlate with motivation. Is that right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So there's kind of two elements of motivation. The first is finding a way to feel in control. And the second is trying to link what you're doing to some deeper aspiration or goal or value, hmm. right? Because because if you're doing something that feels stupid, it's going to be hard to motivate for it. Yeah. But oftentimes, figuring out how this stupid activity is actually linked to something important, that's pretty easy to do if you remind yourself to do it. So right. I was talking to this one researcher at Oxford. He was actually a a neurologist oncologist. And he said he hates grading students' papers, right? It's just Mm -hmm. boring. It's like least favorite activity. So before he starts grading students' papers, he always goes to this mantra, which is he says to himself, okay, I'm going to grade these papers because if I grade these papers and I'm going to choose which question to start with, he always finds a choice for himself. And then he says, if I grade these papers, then we can collect tuition. If we can collect tuition, they can pay for my research. If I can pay for my research, I'm going to cure cancer. And if I cure cancer, I'll save millions of lives. So by grading these students' papers, I'm going to save millions of lives. What? Now, this on the face of it is totally ridiculous, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's particularly ridiculous for a guy who has an MD-PhD to have to do that. Yeah. But the reason he has an MD-PhD is because he does stuff like this automatically before he does boring tasks. He links this task to some larger value or goal yeah. or ambition. Yeah. And as a result, it's easier to motivate to do the small dumb things that all of us have to do at some point. That's awesome. Well, you have a whole chapter, and I wish we could dive in, but I actually want to go elsewhere. I'm going to summarize it real quick. You have a, a chapter in this book on goal setting. Again, the book is Smarter, Faster, Better, and I'm just going to go through it real quick. You want us to say, what's my stretch goal? What's a specific sub-goal? How will I measure my success? Is this actually achievable? Is this realistic? What's my timeline? Those are some of the things we need to think about when goal setting, and and you really just want to read chapter four in the book. But I want to skip all the way to chapter six. I want to talk about decision-making. I mean, actually, before we set goals, let's talk about just day-to-day decision-making. You say this on page 203 of the book, you have to be comfortable not knowing exactly where life is going. All we can do is learn how to make the best decisions that are in front of us and trust that over time the odds will be 
in our favor. I just love that because you actually honor this sense of, yes, you must have an internal locus of control. You must get in control of your life and not let it ride you. And yet you're not going to be able to control this thing fully. You just don't have that much power, right? You're not God. That's exactly right. And you can beat up on yourself a lot by looking at past choices and saying like, oh, why didn't I do X? Why didn't I do Y? But the answer usually is, oh, you made the best choice that was right in front of you, because you can't predict the future. And it's interesting, in that chapter we talk about, when mathematicians talk about this kind of decision-making, they refer to it as Bayesian decision-making, right, or Bayesian probabilistic um, methods. And uh, that's just a fancy way of how you program a computer to, like, learn from what's going on and make adjustments to decision-making as it learns more and more and more. And what's interesting is that the human brain is really good at doing this automatically, right? right? Humans are really, really good at taking small amounts of data and finding patterns and predictions in them that help us make the best choice in front of us. Hmm. But there's two parts of that. The first is that in order to like help that intuition, that Bayesian intuition get more mature, you really have to expose yourself to lots of kinds of different experiences, which means not just successes, but also failures. Right. right. You have to read about failures. You have to ask people about failures. You have to fail yourself. And most importantly, learn from those failures. Try and figure out, like, what's the lesson? Rather than beating up on myself for failing, how do I learn from this lesson so that the next time this pattern comes along, I actually recognize it faster? Yeah. Because it's usually not obvious that it's going to be a failure when you first see it until you've, you've learned, right? Yeah. I, I think the big takeaway here is that the way that successful people see choices and successes and failures is they see each choice as kind of a little experiment. Hmm. And the thing about experiments is that experiments are not supposed to work all the time. If you go into a laboratory and they say every experiment was successful, that is a bad laboratory, right? The whole point of running experiments is to figure out where things succeed and fail, to sharpen your hypothesis. You talk about being a poker player in this context. Does that have to do with the experience of knowing what other cards have been dealt and what hands have been dealt, and you kind of narrow your decisions based on the data that's being presented to you? Is that what you mean by thinking of life almost like that's a poker player? That's a huge player? part of it. Yeah. But a huge part of it, of getting good as a poker player, yeah. is being okay with losing hands, because when you lose a hand, it provides you data. Yeah, it gives you right? information. Yeah, Exactly. Most people fail. They lose a hand, a business deal doesn't go the way they want it to, a meeting doesn't go the way they want it to. And instead of looking for the data from it, instead of seeing it as an experiment, they blame themselves. Yeah. They they ignore the data because of guilt or shame or disappointment. Instead of seeing it as a competitive advantage. Yeah. That's exactly right. People who are successful, they fail just as much as everyone else. The difference is that they try and see that failure as an opportunity. Right. Because it gives you some really essential data. Charles, you have a wonderful book, but you know, I I read the book and it gives me, you know, I I use the word competitive advantage here a few times. I feel like the book teaches you to sort of dance with and work with your subconscious. It's basically saying, here's how your brain actually works. And if you want to be more productive and stay sane, because there's so much in the book that's actually about life, not just getting more work done. It's about you being a healthy human being. I learned so much from it. But as I talk to you, I realize there's also an enormous amount in this book about grace. You just got to forgive yourself. You can't pretend to be perfect or expect yourself to be perfect. Successful people don't That's do that. That's a really that. nice way of putting it, that you're trying to dance with your own subconscious. Because <laughs> That's how I felt. I was like, this guy's teaching me how to work my own monster. 
<laughs> or yeah, surf my own the way. The truth is that like, we all are carrying around these brains that evolved mm. over millions of years in very different settings yeah. than what we live in right now. And just not designed to live in this overstimulation. Yeah. A very necessary book, Smarter, Faster, Better. It's a wonderful book. You've probably read his other bestsellers. Uh, if you haven't picked up this one yet, grab it. Charles, how can people find out more about you and, and interact with you a little bit more? Where do they need to go? If they just Google me, Charles Duhigg, or The Power of Habit, or Smarter, Faster, Better, my page will come up, and all my contact information is on there. I'd love to hear from anyone who's out there. Charles, thank you for being a guest on our show today. It's just an honor to spend time with you. Thanks for having me on. JJ, next week we've got Chris Hogan. Yay! He wrote a book called Retire Inspired. Yeah. I'm 46, uh -huh. and it actually got me thinking, I might be able to retire, like, if I make some, you know, it's like put a dollar away a yeah, day yeah, yeah. by the time. I still got some time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I could be a very, very, very wealthy man. I could say, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> you would love to say that, actually, you and your lawn. I know. Anyway, speaking of Chris Hogan. <laughs> He's going to love that intro. Yeah, yeah, that's a great. He's brilliant. Yeah. He works over at Ramsey Solutions, and he's one of their retirement specialist folks. He's written a bunch of books. He's a fantastic speaker. And so next week's is just practical stuff that you can do with your money to exponentially make it work for you. Love it. Rather than be a slave to it. Here's a little bit of my conversation with Chris. See, having debt is risk because what I have found is even if your child is sick, even if you lose your job or you're sick, debt doesn't care. It wants a payment each and every month. Matter of fact, it requires a payment. Hmm. So it just takes. So yeah. I call debt a thief and I need people to see it for what it is. Don't rationalize it because there's all these cute commercials out there to get you laughing, right? What's in your wallet, right? My boys love the commercial when it comes yeah, on. Yeah, They're yeah, like, yeah. daddy, what's in your wallet? I'm like, cash. <laughs> daddy has cash, you know, yeah. but it's that mindset. And let's not look at it and think it's a friend because in reality, it's debt is a friend to me. Right. It's that friend that's talking about you behind your back and it's yeah. stealing from you every day. So look at it, get it out of your life, keep more of your money, and then you can start to make progress. So be sure to tune in next week. It's yeah. going to be a good one. All right. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to have an internal locus of control. <laughs> <laughs>